Colossians chapter 2, 9 through 15. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, would you receive this moment as an act of worship from your church? You've given us revelation through your text, through your scriptures, and now give us illumination to see your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're nearing the end of our vision series. This is the end. This is the final month of our vision series. And and for the vision series, we're talking about what does it mean to live as a community of Jesus followers, Jesus apprentices in the 21st century specifically in San Diego. And so this is kind of how we're talking about it. As apprentices of Jesus, we orient our lives around these three goals. Do you have that slide? Number one, be with Jesus. And then two, become like Jesus. And three, do what Jesus did. So in September, we looked at that first one, be with Jesus. We talked about what it looks like to remain in the vine, to abide in the love of God, intimate relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. This is ground zero for this Jesus following thing. This is it, being with Jesus. You and I cannot experience the life transformation God promises us without first stepping into relationship with God through Jesus, which is why we bring baptism into our monthly liturgy now. It is the first of every month, and this is the gate, the wedding ceremony, by which we step into the covenant relationship with one another and with God as his church. So again, if you didn't bring an extra change of clothes, that's okay, we have towels and shirts today for you. Um, And the water's only like 60, so that's great. We'll cheer you on. We'll cheer you on as you step into the kingdom. I loved last month, well, our, our first baptism Sunday, the cheering for God's work in people's lives was so profound to be a part of. Uh, and baptism is the beginning of that number one, be with Jesus. Baptism kicks off the whole journey. And then in October, we looked at the second one, become like Jesus. And we talked about how living in Christian community is non-negotiable for experiencing the the spirit-empowered life change that he promises us. And now, for the rest of the month, we're looking at the third and final piece. Do what Jesus did. In other words, the practices of Jesus. Jesus didn't give us a ton of commands and rules, per se. What he did give us was his own faithful life, followed by an invitation, follow me. So he lived this life, and then he said, follow me in it. In other words, Jesus believed he himself was the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to God except through his life, by joining with Jesus' life. Through church history, that's been called union with Christ, 
by the Holy Spirit in relationship with the Father. It's a mystery. We get to be part of the love relationship between the Trinity, you guys. This isn't rules. This is a fully reoriented heart. And so it's an open invitation to everyone to follow him into God's life and discover what Jesus calls life to the fullest. So those who accept that invitation become, you can call Christians, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, whatever. Those that accept Jesus' invitation join the family of God. And in every nation, little local families of this bigger family are called churches. We are one of these millions of churches all over the world celebrating this resurrected king that we worship. And, and so we become family. And, and these families, these churches, they give their lives to learning to think like their king thinks and act like their king acts by the power of the Spirit. In other words, we do what Jesus did, okay? And so last week, Scott, while we, my wife and I were gone, Scott Curran, he kicked off the do what Jesus did part uh, by talking about the practice of prayer. And he looked at how Paul prayed for the church in Colossae like a ton through chapter one. And we as a church wanna make the conscious decision to follow Jesus into deeper prayer, not just as personal Christians, that's important, alone with God in prayer, but also equally, if not more so important, is to gather together as communities of prayer, which is why we have Park Hill communities. And it's why we do pre-gathering prayer every Sunday morning at 745. And it's why we have Wednesday morning prayer so that we would deepen as a, as a praying community. So last week was prayer, and today, here's the second do what Jesus did practice. You ready? Do what Jesus did, proclaim the good news. <laughs> this is actually a Christian practice. This is actually a Christian practice. Paul's doing this all through this letter to Colossians, especially in the part we read, chapter two, 19, nine through 15. And we're gonna circle back and and tail end this sermon by walking through that text. Um, but I just want to establish right now, followers of Jesus are people who proclaim the good news of the king, a.k.a. evangelism, right? Proclaim the gospel, share your faith, all of these phrases, they mean the same thing. Uh, so let me just ask you guys, you that are Christian, raise your hand if you're like a Christian, kind of. You think, yeah, raise your hand if you're a Christian. A lot of Christians in church, that makes sense. Now let me ask you this. How many of you guys feel like you're just killing it at this evangelism thing right now? You're just crushing, yes. There's someone confidently too, owning their space in the world of evangelism. That's so good. You, like, raise your hand if you're killing, like you're proclaiming the good news, like sharing your faith is a regular rhythm of your life. You're thriving in evangelism. You're just on fire right now. You're bringing the good news of the kingdom into natural conversation with unbelievers and it's not weird. It's just who you are and you're just seeing fruit fall all around you and you're crushing it. Yes, there's one hand. That's so good. I'm, I wanna meet who that is. So yes, no, I, I saw most hands like super hesitant to be raised. And so here's, speaking personally, last weekend was a wake-up call for me. Like I said, my wife and I were uh, not here last weekend. We had the privilege of leading worship for uh, the Luis Palau Association retreat in Orange County. How many of you have heard of Luis Palau? Yeah. Uh, he's a household evangelist name, well-known. He's preached the gospel to more than 30 million people in his lifetime. Over 1 million people 
have intentionally joined the family of God uh, through his preaching ministry. The Palau Association has their home base in Portland, so we became friends through Luis and his sons, Kevin and Andrew and Keith now, uh, while we were up in Portland. Actually, this church, Park Hill, was planted by Westside Church in Portland, and Westside was planted by Luis Palau's church in Portland, Cedar Mill. So there's like a family generational connection there. So last weekend, I'm sitting there with a bunch of Luis's key supporters and leaders in this hotel where they're praying about the vision for 2020 for the Luis Palau evangelistic organization. And I'm just listening to Luis preach. He's 84 years old. He has stage four lung cancer. I don't know if you knew that. And he's preaching better than ever. Like he's just crushing it and preaching the good news of Jesus to a room full of people that are fully supporting him. And we're being moved by the gospel in this room with him. And it was so powerful for me personally. God knew I needed this wake-up call. I was personally reminded that the gospel must remain the center of my life. And I'll just be transparent with you guys right now. It's nuts how how the mechanics of leading a church can actually distract a church leader from the urgent simplicity of preaching the gospel. (laughs) Like in my life, to myself, but then to people who are actually lost in my life. Let's face it, these days, I don't know if you're like me, we come up with every reason in the world why we shouldn't regularly evangelize lost people. Like, oh, it's not culturally sensitive. The old methods, you know, it's just not I'm, not, I'm not a bullhorn on the corner kind of guy or whatever, as if that's the only way. And like, the old methods aren't well received. And, and, or my personal favorite, we should live the gospel before we preach it. When we say that while never actually getting around to ever preaching it. Um, and and Barna, Group, Barna Group did this fascinating study on evangelism earlier this year in February 2019. So... 94 to 97% of all Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus and that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. How many of you agree with that? Yes, like that's why we're gonna cheer in a couple minutes for people that make this decision to follow Jesus. We love it when people come to Jesus. Like who, what Christian doesn't love? It's the most important decision we make. What, 94 to 90, I don't know what's up with the other three to 6%. <laughs> But most of us understand that this is the most important decision you'll ever make. Now, now check this out. 73% of Christian millennials say they know how to respond to questions about faith and that they're gifted at sharing their faith. Like, I'm technically a millennial still, born after 1980, and I feel that. Like, I feel like I know my stuff, and I'm confident that if I'm asked, I could say things. And 73% of Christian millennials are confident. More than... 66% of Gen Xers, 59% of Boomers, 56 elders. So that's interesting, isn't it? Um, so, so millennial Christians are more confident about their ability to share their faith. However, you guys, I gotta say, as a millennial, I love the confidence. I love the confidence. But despite the confidence, we are conflicted when it comes to actually practicing this. Look at this last stat. of Christian millennials agree that it's wrong to share your personal beliefs with someone of another faith in hopes that they will one day share yours. 
That's way more than any other generation. 27% of Gen X feel that way, 19 of boomers, 20% of elders. In other words, most Christians, American millennial Christians, they feel we're, we feel we're gifted at this, and we love it when it happens, but almost half of us feel that actually doing it is maybe discriminatory, if not wrong. Talk about conflicted. We feel this. I, feel, I actually weirdly feel this. Like, I sympathize with this. Anyone else? Like, it happens to me all the time. Like, I got my family in our Sprinter van, <laughs> and we're, we're, we're driving to church on a Sunday morning. I grab a coffee from Dark Horse, and then the barista's like, hey, so where are you off to? I'm like, ugh. It's that feeling. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, and I have to say, uh, I guess I could just say church and just let her think whatever she wants, but I don't want her to think whatever she wants. I want to be able to tell her I'm not what she thinks. You know what I mean? And so like, I'm, I'm a pastor. What do you think? What do I do with other pastors? And when someone asks me, what are you up to today? I'm like, how do I say that? What do I do? When, when it's actually, it's actually uh, all my calculations in my mind are sabotaging my courage as a bearer of the good news. So why is evangelism so scary? Why is it so scary and hard? I think it's because we don't have a good idea of what the gospel is, Christians. More specifically, our problem, especially for those of us that have been in the church for a while, our problem is that we're unclear on how the gospel actually connects to the real problems people have. Uh, and then add to that, we buy into the false but popular perception that sharing the gospel basically just means telling people they're going to hell if they don't say yes to our brand of religion, which is such a thin, warped view of the gospel. It's not even recognizable. So this begs the question then, we got to go here, what is the gospel? What is the content of the gospel? What is this news that God's people are announcing all over the world. And, and here's another question. How does this news save? How does this news help people? Um, the people who receive it. So what's the gospel? How does it save people? These are the questions we have to go for today if we're going to practice this. And so I want to go to a really helpful place. I think it's ground zero in the Bible for this idea of gospel. And it actually isn't in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It comes from the famous prophet Isaiah, way before Jesus. You see, in the little background, the ancient world, cities would go to battle against each other. And, um, and when your army would win, you would send the good news. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was the euangelion, where we get evangelism. We would send the good news back home. Like our, our, our army wins Let's send the euangelion. Let's send the good news back home. Uh, because why? Everyone at home, their lives were on the line. Their whole existence depended on this victory. If their team didn't win, then all of them would come in and the mothers and, and children would belong to new dads. You know, it'd be just a full on, it would be a bloodbath. And so uh, they were hanging on the edge of their seats. Their existence counted on this news, Okay. And so everyone's lives are on the line, and, uh, and they didn't have email. So the fastest way to bring the good news was on foot. So they would actually commission gospel runners who would just sprint, like more, double marathons, sprint back home to tell their families, their loved ones, 
Not only are we alive, but we have the spoils. We are the victors. We own all, we own the land. Like this is our place and we're existing together and shalom is coming. And so Isaiah, he used this picture of a runner and a runner's feet specifically, and he makes it a metaphor for the one who will announce God's victory over evil. The one who will announce that God's kingdom has arrived and his healing has come, okay? So check it out right here on the screen, Isaiah 52, verse seven. (laughs) Isaiah writes, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. God's not dead. He did not get thwarted in battle. He took care of all the other enemies who were out for our blood. That's the content of the gospel, by the way, in three words. Your God reigns. That's the the nugget in the gospel that we still preach today. And, And that was the good news. Israel was longing to hear. They were dying to hear this. They were dying to hear in Isaiah's day. Everybody, the fight's over. Exile's over. You're no longer slaves. Our future is secure. Evil is lost. God is won. All of God's people are saved from the bad guys. And Isaiah goes on, verse 8. He says, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They were like straining their eyes to look on the horizon. Maybe there's a gospel runner coming today. Maybe there's a gospel runner bringing good news. And they'd be staring in the direction of the battle, longing to see those feet Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they'll see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will literally flex his bicep. It says, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. Picture the rock or something. And and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So this was written... 500 to 700 years before Jesus, this was the gospel announcement Israel was longing for. They wanted to know, when is God's king coming who will deliver us from exile and be the fulfillment of our longings, like our deepest longings for freedom from evil and forgiveness and healing and belonging, and then enter Jesus. And Jesus shows up on the scene acting like this announcement is somehow coming true in his life. So this ancient national announcement of deliverance, Jesus is like, it's here. And then he just say, follow me. And we see this in the earliest recorded words of Jesus. Mark 1, this is the earliest recorded Uh, We believe it's the earliest gospel, and it's the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in that gospel. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Talk about what that means. We've heard it before. Repent and believe the what? The good news. Same word as the announcement, same word as gospel, the euangelion. It's all the same word. So from the earliest gospel, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is this announcement, the good news that God's global kingdom of peace is arriving in himself, Jesus. And then he follows that up with a call to repent and believe. What does repent mean? It means to rethink 
you're thinking. It's actually a turning of mind. It's a turning of worldview. It's like, if God's good kingdom is coming and he's the only winner forever, rethink everything. Repent. And then do what? Believe. Believe is that Greek word that means to pledge allegiance. So this good king is coming. Rethink everything. How are you opposed to his rule? And then repent and believe because his kingdom is better than you can imagine. And now, San Diego, 2,000 years later, right here, 2019, the good news is the same thing. For you and for me, this is the good news we proclaim. Jesus is alive and his kingdom is arriving in the world through his body, the church, And we believe, (laughs) this is the craziest thing ever, can't wait for this. We believe that one day, Jesus himself will physically return to fully heal and judge the world with his perfect judgment. And you guys, we actually really want this judgment. We long for judgment day. You don't believe me? Well, we're dying for it, actually. Who else is gonna end global hunger and terrorism and racism? and stop sex traffickers for good, and lift everyone out of poverty and into dignity, and bring down corrupt governments, and restore mental health, and unlabel everyone living under a disability label, and stop abortions from happening, and provide for underprivileged single mothers, and forgive and cleanse me from my narcissism and my anger issues, and bring every single parentless child into a family of belonging, and heal every father wound, and wipe away every tear, and on and on. Who else is strong enough? Who else is wise enough to do that? Who else could carry that out? We can throw our opinions on Twitter about these things, but who else is going to enact the judgment that puts these things in their place for good? No one but Jesus. You guys, he's, only he is that good and strong and loving and wise. We long for judgment day, you guys. We long for judgment day. We want justice. Every, we're constantly talking about justice. We want justice. And this is the good news announcement that Jesus is coming to make the final judgment calls. And this is why the announcement comes with a call for us to receive. And the call for us is to repent, rethink everything in light of his judgment, and believe, pledge allegiance to the judge, his authority. As Peter says in Acts, this repentance is for our refreshment, actually. (laughs) Repentance is for refreshment, Acts 3.19, he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The good news comes with a call to, to be refreshed by rethinking everything in light of how good this kingdom is that is coming. God wants to remove our sin and give us refreshment. But hold on, pause. We just hit a buzzword that we don't know what to do with, right? This is, what, this is a huge problem. I think this is at the core of why we are scared of preaching the gospel. We don't know what sin is anymore. Not just we as a culture, but even like we as a church, we flattened out this idea of sin. So how much more the culture is completely lost on what sin even is. I mean, we in the West, we typically just think of sin as being guilty and needing to be innocent. 
Um, so we say this to people, hey, God can forgive your sin. Like we get the courage up to preach the gospel or whatever. And then we, hey, hey, you know, God wants to forgive you of your sins. Do you believe you're a sinner? And they're like, no, nope, I feel great. <laughs> like I'm, I feel like I'm a sinner. What are you talking about? And you're like, you know, you know, just partying and like feeling and like, the, you know, I know that you, and like, no, that one night stand was great. <laughs> like I don't feel guilty. And you're like, oh, dang, I don't know what to preach now. I don't know what to go. Like, you just lost your like, gospel ammo because you don't know what to do. They're not guilty. They don't feel guilty. Um, and it stumps us. It stumps us because we've flattened this idea of sin to the paradigm of like, innocence and guilt. Um, it's no wonder why we're hesitant to announce good news for the forgiveness of sin. And so um, I would submit the innocence guilt dynamic, that's only one facet. Picture the gospel like a gemstone, and sin is even like a gemstone. It's a dark gemstone, and it has a lot of facets. It's not just innocence and guilt. It is, it is you, spin, you spin the stone a little bit, and you see a whole nother spectrum. Innocence to guilt is one spectrum. My mentor, Gary Bashir, talks about how there's at least seven dimensions of sin in the Bible. And it's so helpful to be aware of these when you're talking to people in our lives because America is moving beyond guilt and innocence. We don't know how to feel guilt or we just call it whatever, bad feeling, we move on. So, so here's a helpful list. I'm gonna go through these and apply it from Colossians 2. Um, seven dimensions of sin. Guilt and innocence is what we're most familiar with if you've grown up in America or in the church. But there's also... The, the idea that God's work, the gospel, moves us from chaos to shalom, moves us from fear to power, from defilement to being clean, from despair to hope, from shame to honor, and from lost to belonging. And so this is where Colossians comes in. I'm gonna show you from the Colossians passage we read, there's at least six of these dimensions going on in just a few short verses, and it's beautiful. So profound. Um, so let's read it again. Chapter two, verse nine through 15. Starting in verse nine and 10, I'll put on the screen. He, uh, Paul writes to the Colossians, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. This is the gospel of chaos to shalom. Chaos to shalom. You see, guys, the chaos of this world, you don't have to look far to see it. Globally, it's right there in your Twitter feed or your news app. Chaos. Everywhere. And then we have personal chaos. That's your 2 a.m. anxiety that wakes you up and makes you bummed that you didn't use the extra hour of sleep on daylight savings. And so, and so that's chaos. And all the chaos, this, this gospel means all the chaotic shards of broken, broken humanity and the broken world, it will be brought together again. Full shalom, whole peace will reign from the power of Jesus. This is the gospel in the NICU, in the NICU. Chaos invading the small life of a human baby who's born terminal, no explanation. What did this baby do wrong? It's not about guilt and innocence right now. It's about chaos and shalom. God is moving all things towards shalom. There is chaos now. 
And so to repent and believe means to believe that God is the same God who hovered over the face of chaos. In Genesis chapter one, verse two, the spirit hovered over creation and longed for a created order. And he will make sure that his will comes to pass and he'll bring all the brokenness back into fullness. And all the inexplainable tsunamis that take hundreds of thousands of lives in the Indian Ocean, chaos. And Jesus will have his way. That's the gospel. Chaos to shalom. Here's another one. Next verse. Colossians 2.10. There's a simple sentence that says, he is the head over every power and authority. And this is the gospel of fear to power. This is an especially powerful angle. If you're preaching in Africa, I don't know if you've been to Africa or India. Um, in African countries where witch doctors still kidnap children for their pagan rituals, this is a powerful gospel. This is the gospel of spiritual warfare. Jesus has claimed the final victory over all the forces of darkness, and to repent means to accept Christ's identity as a child of light and believe that darkness has no jurisdiction in your heart any longer. This is the gospel that moves you from fear to power. And so often we're unequipped to preach this gospel to people because we're thinking in terms of guilt and innocence when someone is racked by the demonic. And Jesus comes to bring child of light status to all who believe in him. Do you want that? And then verse 11, there's another angle. I'll turn the gemstone again. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. This is the gospel that moves you from defiled to clean. Circumcision was a purity ritual. It meant you were in the clean camp. Now circumcision is replaced by baptism in God's family. And that's why when you go under the water, you're, you're acknowledging that Jesus offers you an identity that is clean in his sight. And, and the waters cleanse you. This is why John writes in his epistle, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You guys, this is uh, the gospel for the abused. Sin isn't just something we do that makes us guilty. Sin is also something done to us that makes us believe we're defiled. And Jesus' invitation is to receive his beloved, cleansed identity, and through confessing the sin done to you, that's confessing sin, through that confession, not only are you forgiven of your sin, but you are cleansed of the defilement that you've been believing over your life ever since your abuse or ever since that word spoken over you that altered your own self-perception. The gospel moves us from defiled to clean. Also, verse 13, there's another angle. Turn the gemstone again. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. This is the gospel that moves you from despair to hope, from depression, clinical depression. You may never move out of it this side of the grave. But this is the gospel that moves you through it until you raise from the dead. The paradox of Christianity is that we have hope in both death and resurrection. It's the only thing like it. We have hope in both, death actually speaks of hope and resurrection actually speaks of hope. 
This means that your sorrow and your clinical depression that you absolutely have to take medication for, these things that you are going through and the joys and the sorrows, they are all moving you toward a day when every tear will be wiped away. Your depression and sorrow may feel like senseless suffering and purposeless pain, but Jesus overcame sin and death. And now all your suffering is leading somewhere because Jesus' dead corpse was always headed somewhere. And so to repent of your despair means not to like believe that it'll all be gone when you become a Christian, but it's to believe that while you walk through it, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, the good shepherd will guide me, even if I die here, because I will raise with you. So to repent and believe means I will rise with Christ. This is the good news he, op he offers the hopeless, the depressed, and the despairing. Turn the gemstone again for the next verse. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And this is that familiar gospel, moving from guilt to innocence. We're used to hearing it, and listen, we don't hear it enough. It's absolutely true, absolutely true. We are imperfect, hypocritical human beings that don't even measure up to the judgments we lay on others, okay? Let alone God's judgment on us. We cannot, we fall short of the glory of God, right? And so we stand guilty before God's perfect law. Thankfully, God knows this about us. And he willingly bore the penalty of our sin that we sinned into him at the cross. And, and he took it into his flesh and blood and he forgave us and took away your guilt. This is good news. And so this is, repent this is repentance for refreshment, you guys. Like, there are very few things more refreshing than getting rid of your guilt. <laughs> like, not suppressing it, pretending it's not there, but actually, actually being face-to-face -face with the person you abused or person you, that you wronged and, and them saying, hey, 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 welcome to my family. I forgive you. There is nothing more refreshing than receiving the forgiveness from the person you wronged. And then turn to the gemstone again. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the gospel that moves you from shame to honor. And this one deeply resonated with Jesus' hearers, you guys. Honor and shame were like the highest values. Like a lot of Eastern countries today, where public honor killings still happen, Wild cultures out there, very different from ours. They're wild to us. Uh, because uh, you see, Jesus' enemies, they were trying to publicly shame him and discredit him by crucifying him. But in the end, Jesus' willingness to die for his killers actually turned the tables on them and made a public spectacle of his haters, okay? Jesus' sacrificial death ended up shaming the shamers, this is the gospel that empowered Martin Luther King Jr. and the diner sit-ins in the civil rights movement in the 60s. They would sit in those white-only diners. Uh, the African-Americans would come in to the white Americans and they'd be like, I am human too, and I will wait until I'm served. And they would endure silently the mockery and the beating and the dehumanization. And guess what? This is the first, first generation that saw nationally syndicated television. And so the whole nation saw racism for what it is 
and began seeing the shamefulness of its own racism, began seeing a glimmer. So the good news for you, if you've been stabbed in the back, if you've been abandoned, publicly shamed, if you've experienced racism, sexism, slander or gossip, then listen, you are in good company. Jesus is right there with you, inviting you to endure faithfully to the end, where the shamers are shamed, and those that attempt to defeat are defeated. And then finally, the last turn of the gemstone, go back to chapter one for this, verse 21 and 22. He says, once you were alienated and were enemies in your minds because of evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You guys, this is the gospel that moves you from lost to belong. And I think, could go out a limb here, this one is huge for today. We just need to name this for people. People don't have the language for this. Your friend might not feel guilty about the one night stand, but the reason that person went for the one night stand in the first place is because they were longing to belong. Everywhere you look, our, our culture promises us pleasure and belonging and intimacy. Body image and physical health ads keep throwing their promises at us. My own Instagram feed feels like my own personal stream of like never ending promises. Like, in my Instagram keeps promising me, this is the experience I promise you should be having. Like, this is the good life. This is your relationship goals. This could be you right now. Uh, this should be you. And we live in a culture of promise, which makes all of us feel so alone. And we crave belonging. People are hungry for family. They just need to be shown how deeply good the good news of the family of God is. You guys, our culture is transitioning and changing so fast because of technology and globalization. Things are just changing and shifting. And I don't know about you, but I see all of this movement leading to a massive opportunity for a fresh move of God in our time. I think Mark Sayers is right when he says, transition and dissatisfaction are often companions. You guys, we get to be present for an incredibly dissatisfied shift in America. It's shaping up to be incredible where widespread hunger will be everywhere, which for followers of Jesus is just low-hanging fruit, like low-hanging gospel opportunity. Jesus Christ is the bread of life the only truly satisfying source of life for all humanity, and he offers this, this bread and this cup in a family where belonging is here, an eternal place of belonging. And so as the spirit-filled followers of Jesus, you carry this news. You carry this news in your heart and in your communities. Just recently, a community leader came up to me and, and said, hey, Evan, like, there's someone coming to our community, and, and they just... I don't know if they're a Christian or what. It seems like, I don't really, what do you recommend? I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like the dream. That's amazing. It's so incredible. And, and, I, and I, just wanna, I just wanna see more of this. I'm like, you guys are well done. Something about what God is doing in your community is allowing this open door for this life to experience a transformative belonging. Get this is amazing. And, and I think we're going to see so much more of this when the church is just the family to one another. Now is the strategic time to do what Jesus did and practice proclaiming the gospel for the salvation of lost people in our lives. 
You guys, it's time to move beyond the conflictedness about this. Now more than ever, the church in America needs a vision for the mission of God. David Blush said it this way, mission, it's more than and different from recruitment to our brand of religion. It's alerting people to the universal reign of God. This is the vision we need to wake up to. Jesus commands me to go and make more disciples who proclaim the same good news that's transforming my life. In Gary Bashir's words, when we preach the gospel, we tell the Jesus story and we tell my Jesus story. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Oh, wow, has he transformed me? And it can be very natural. It's as natural as a relationship. And the way we step into this relationship is through the waters of baptism. So here we are. This is the come to the waters moment. And uh, there are people who have accepted the reality of this gospel and have decided to covenant with all of you, like to actually covenant with the family and say, bear witness, like hear ye in the old sense, like listen, I am covenanting with you in my community to walk in the way of Jesus together. And so let's cheer them in as they go. Let's pray for us. Heavenly Father, you've given us good news. And Lord, it's you that brings the power. Our preaching, our preaching doesn't bring the power, it's your power. We just get to talk to people about your power. So I pray that you would encourage everyone here to know and see the goodness of Jesus alive at work in our own life. Awaken us to the goodness of your gospel. Awaken us to what you still wanna do through our communities. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, uh, like we do now, feel free to stand up, feel free to gather around, feel free to get as close as you can to get a look. And just to remind you guys, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's not your speaking power. Understand this. My wife brought up to me before this teaching, she's like, Evan, be sure to remind them, we can plant and water, but God does it. <laughs> so it's not up to our eloquence. It's up to us telling people the Jesus story in our own life. And these are those who have responded to it, which is really great. So Scott and Rachel are going to get in the water and we're going to sing.